0: If you have a Bible, open it up or turn it on to Luke chapter seven or Luke chapter eight. We were in Luke chapter seven for a whole month. Luke chapter eight. Uh, this morning we look at uh, a parable that Jesus teaches. Uh, some of you I've shared this with before, and some of you don't know this, but I grew up in Central California, in the San Joaquin Valley, little tiny town of Lindsay, California. And one of the things that uh, about that area in the San Joaquin Valley is that there is some soil there that we call hardpan. And if you don't know what hardpan soil is, it's not a a very uh, fun thing to work with if you are going to grow anything. And you would have this uh, layer of anywhere from uh, a foot to six feet of hardpan in the San Joaquin Valley. California, as, as, as warm as it is and beautiful it may be, it's a desert area. And so you'd have this hard soil, and to get through the hard soil to the good soil, you would have to get what we called a breaker bar uh, to get a pickaxe, something to literally break through the layers of this hard pan soil. But once you got through to the good soil, it was good soil. You see, the hard pan uh, resisted the water going down, and so you would have the San Joaquin Valley, known in this world as one of the richest agricultural areas in the whole world. All over the Central Valley where I grew up, there are massive oak trees. You may have seen pictures of some of these as there's some world record oak trees there. Some of them can grow from 80 to 100 feet tall, and, and, and the branches reach 80 and 100 feet wide. They're massive. I know that when uh, a tr- an oak tree would fall in California, if you had permission, you could go cut it up. And uh, uh, those of you who love wood, you're like, yeah, cut it up. No, we would go cut it up for firewood. They're like, you were burning oak uh, yes, and instead of turning into cabinets. And I remember as a kid standing next to a huge section of a trunk that to me was like taller and I couldn't climb over the top of it. But these trees are massive because their roots go down deep into the good soil and they go down and reach the water. And this morning we look at a parable that Jesus teaches about soil and about seeds and about plants and about hearts And the key I want you to pay attention to is repeatedly the word hear or hearing is used. And I ask you this morning, how good is your hearing? Not talking about the volume of sound. If you have hearing aids or not, how good is your hearing of your heart? That when the word of God is preached, how do you receive the word of God and apply it in your life? The big idea this morning as we look at Luke chapter eight is this. The condition of the heart determines the reception of the gospel and fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. Would you look at Luke chapter 8, beginning in verses 4 through verse 15. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. This parable is also recorded in Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4. And I encourage you to also read uh, Matthew and Mark as they describe uh, the same event, the same parable. Uh, the crowds have been gathering. It's such a large crowd. Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee. He sits down. But then what happens as Matthew and Mark help us see is he has to stand up and he gets into a boat and then he comes off the shore a ways so that he can speak to the th- I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people. The water would have elevated his voice as he tells this parable, and it says uh, he describes it to us. And so let's look at verses 4 through 8. Some of you know this as the parable of the sower. Maybe your Bible even has a title, the parable of the sower. I've titled this the parable of soils because I believe as Jesus gives us uh, an understanding of it, it deals with the soils describing our heart. So look at verse 5. You have a sower a farmer who goes out to plant seed. I don't know if in that area, as Jesus is teaching, there's a farmer who's doing this, and he's pointing out, hey, look over there at that sower. You have a picture of a farmer, and traditionally they're in uh, Palestine. They would have had a bag of seed, a container of seed. Maybe it's over their shoulder. They're walking through their field, and they are casting seed as they are going. Therefore, the seed is just spreading out and falling all over the place. And it says there's a soil that falls in the path. So this would have been a path around the, uh, the field, or maybe they're cutting through the field. It's very hard. It's packed down. It's smoothed out because of people traveling it. The seed hits it, just kind of bounces off or sits on top. It's a great thing for birds because uh, they're looking for something to eat, and it says that they swoop down, and they have a great meal eating up all of the seed. Then it says that some of the seed that falls lands in the soil, but there's some rocks there. Now, in Palestine there in some of the farming, you would have uneven fields. They're not all level. Maybe some rocks you can see. But one of the th- problems they would have is a layer of limestone rock that could be just under the soil, maybe just a few inches of soil there. Uh, no one told me that in this area that if you try to plant something, there's a lot of rocks. I was trying to plant three cherry trees about a month ago. And I get the shovel out. My wife says, "Plant one here." And I go, "Clink!" And I'm like, I'm, "The shovel like doesn't even hardly go halfway." I'm like, "What in the world?" I thought I hit a lion or something. And I'm like, digging around. By the time I got done with one hole for the cherry tree, I had almost a five-gallon bucket full of rocks. I threw the shovel aside. Started using a trowel and my hands digging it out there. There are a lot of rocks. I actually had to get some soil in a bag to put in there to help fill it in for that tree. And here, like that soil, the seed falls, but what happens, it describes that it takes root, starts to grow, but then what happens to it once it grows? What's it say there in verse 6? What happens to it? For those of you who haven't been here for a while or if you're visiting, I'm like, hey, if I ask a question, just shout the answer out. What happens to the plant when it grows up there? It withers. Why? What What kills it? The, the sun, there's no moisture. The sun comes up and destroys it. My wife had a really nice basil plant that she got at the store the other week. And it's like, man, it smelled great. It looked great. She set it in the window, and a couple hours later, the whole thing was just wilted over. Even though it had water, the sun came out. The roots couldn't go deep and get more water. Here's what happens to that seed. Verse 7, he's casting the seed out, throws it down, and it falls in an area where there's some other seed that just happens to be weeds. I was uh, excited that as spring came this year and our grass started growing, I'm like, hey, the grass looks wonderful. And a week later, I see all these yellow flowers. I'm like, what in the world it went on here? There's all these dandelions growing up, and there's like it's killing the grass in spots. And I was like, that is a horrible thing. Here's what happens here. The seed gets in the field where he's trying to grow some crops. Up comes some weeds next to it. And if you've ever dealt with weeds before, They have roots that grow fast and they grow deep and they eat other things around them. There's some other weeds that have been growing up on our grass. I'm like, oh, not those. They have these little tiny flowers and they have these little thorns on them. And I'm telling you, they start off real small, but they start branching out. They kill all the grass. And if you ever try to pull up weeds and you don't uh, get the root out, it just keeps growing back up. So here the seed falls that he's trying to farm. Weed grows up, kills out, chokes out the plant. The word choke there that Jesus uses means to strangle or to throttle or to suffocate something. But we like verse 8. What type of soil is in verse 8? What type of soil? Good soil. It's dark soil. You pick it up, it crumbles in your hands. I don't know if you've ever seen a farm pick up the soil and smell it. Good soil has a good sweet smell to it. Maybe there's worms that are inside there, but the soil is really good lived in Los Angeles for 22 years before moving here. And one of the houses we rented, there was a little spot, like a planter, along the side of this fence in the backyard, about 10 feet long, maybe about three feet wide. There was nothing in it. And so I'm like, I don't know, let's, let's play farmer. Let's put something in there. Dug up the soil, tilled it around, planted a, a few uh, a rows of corn, and I could not believe it. The corn grew. And we ate corn that year, and there was lettuce growing, and there was carrots. I don't like carrots, but there was carrots growing, a bunch of other type of stuff. And what it was is it looked like it was just bad because it hadn't been used. But when you tilled it up, the soil was really good soil. And that's what we want when we plant something. Well, here, the seed takes root in the good soil. If you read Matthew's account and Mark's account, Jesus says not just a hundredfold, but he says there's 30. 60, 100 fold of the crop. And that's actually a really good percentage of the seed growing in a crop for a farmer. But as I read that parable, which if you have been in church for a while or you grew up or you've been a Christian for a while, you may have read this or heard this parable. Something that I can't tell you how many times I have heard this parable or read it. But it made me to think about what is Jesus saying to the people here? And I wonder if they're asking, like, what is he talking about? Because he doesn't give them an explanation. He doesn't say, all right, people, you know what I'm talking about? He just gives that illustration. I don't know if, you know, we have a picture of when the disciples ask, the crowd goes away, whatever, but they're talking to Jesus separately, and he tells them the purpose for parables. And If you read from this point on in Luke, and if you read in Matthew, and you read in Mark, there's multiple parables that Jesus uses uh, to teach the people. So let's look at verses 9 through 10, the purpose for the parables. It says in verse 9, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, uh, a parable means to lay something next to each other and compare it, uh, to cast alongside of a truth. He says in verse 10, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. What Jesus is teaching the disciples here, uh, he teaches the same uh, thing in Matthew 13 and Mark 4, is that parables, which Jesus uses, uh, a story to teach a great point, blind people who resist the truth of God's word, but they help people who see the truth and believe in God. And so it's something that is, for some, it's, it doesn't really mean much. It doesn't help them. It actually blinds them. But for others, uh, it is a wonderful thing because it can help them understand. One example would be to go read Mark chapter 8 this week. In Mark chapter 8, you have this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. They're on the boat. Jesus just did a miracle of feeding thousands of people with just some <clears throat> bread, a few pieces of bread and, and some fish. They're on the boat. The disciples are talking about bread. We forgot the bread. And Jesus is talking about the bread of uh, the Pharisees and all this. They don't get it. And he's like, hey, wait a minute. Don't you guys remember what just happened on the shore? In Mark chapter 8, verse 18, he says, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? He was like, Do you not remember I showed you that I am God Almighty? Do you remember that I showed you that I have power over all things? that I was able to feed these thousands with a few. They were so sidetracked they didn't understand it. But hearing and seeing, Jesus uses a number of times recorded in the Gospels about how people respond to the truths of God's word. So if you understand spiritual truths from the word of God, you need to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You need to praise God that He's opened your eyes, that you have ears to hear, because those who reject Christ do not receive that same gracious, wonderful gift as God's people do. Actually, would you turn with me to John chapter 6? The Gospel of John. Turn over to the right there from Luke. John chapter 6 <clears throat> helps us understand uh, how God helps us understand these things. His truth, uh, John chapter 6, verse 44 and 45, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so, as I've said it before, I'll say it again, Jesus teaches us here that no one, in this world, in all of history, has any ability on their own to just turn from a wicked, sinful life as an enemy of God and just one day go, oh, I see the light. It does not happen apart from God the Father drawing us to Him through the work of the Holy Spirit so that when the gospel is declared and we hear it, our eyes are open, we go, I believe. If you go back to verse 37, though, of chapter 6 in John, I would remind you here, that he also says, after he says, I'm the bread of life, whoever, verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that have seen me and yet do not believe, here it is, and all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's important because sometimes people focus on John 6, 44 and 45 and get all riled up and they don't go back to verse 37 of what he just declared. So the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to see the gospel when it's declared that we would turn and believe in faith. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, again, that the parables blind those who reject Christ, but they are a great, wonderful tool to help believers uh, understand a greater biblical truth. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, he writes this, we know that the Son of God has com- has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. In His Son Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Now you need to understand this: when you read the Word of God from Genesis chapter one to the end of the book of, book of Revelation, all the way to the end, every single page, Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter twenty-four that everything. Is about him. He tells us in Luke chapter 24, after he rose from death to life, he says to the believers, he says, everything that was written in the Old Testament, the prophecies, all the writings, everything points to him. The New Testament helps us understand and apply the great truths of him. So everything in the Word of God, which to some people would be a mystery, has everything to do about Jesus Christ. That's why we are about Jesus Christ in the gospel here at this church and in our life and in everything that we do. Now, when Jesus says the secrets of the kingdom of God, here's where people go, what, what is this about? Look back at verse 10 in Luke. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. If you read in Mark and if you read in Matthew and you read here, this word, this, this word mystery um, is used to talk about something that was hidden in the past. Jesus is specifically talking about the Old Testament, but it's something revealed in the New Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Testament covenant. And that's why the Apostle Paul in a number of places writes that this mystery regarding the wisdom of God, these mysteries are things that are hard for people to understand, has everything to do. And it describes the plan of salvation that God set out before time, everything about his son, Jesus Christ, that plan God set out before the foundations of the world, according to Ephesians chapter one. And therefore, when the Apostle Paul talks about these mysteries, when Jesus says, hey, this is the secret of the kingdom of these things, they're secret truths that are hidden from those who reject Christ, but they're revealed to those who are godly and understood. Uh, Someone said, well, that's privileged information. That's not fair. Think about your understanding if you're a Christian right now. Think about your understanding of God's truth before you were a Christian. Before you were a Christian, The gospel of Jesus Christ and God was a huge mystery to some of you, a great offense that anyone would dare tell you about the love of Christ. But you became a Christian. And after hearing the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit now has revealed so many things that when you were not a believer, you're like, I hate those things about Christians. And today you're like, I love that about Jesus Christ. This is what's happening when you read the parables that Jesus teaches. A great, wonderful, glorious truth about the gospel is declared. And for those who are in their sinfulness, who reject Jesus Christ, they are blinded even more. And this is a mystery to them. But for those who are followers of Christ, they are great, wonderful, glorious, gracious truths that God has given to us. The problem is what we see in verses 11 through 15. The problem lies in the person's heart for the unbeliever and for the great wonderful thing for the believer. So let's look at the meaning of the parable in verses 11 through 15. There's some parables when you read through the gospel, Jesus doesn't say this parable means this, but we have all of scripture which helps us understand what Jesus is teaching there. Here we have this wonderful parable, and for the crowds, I mean, imagine you're in the crowd, you hear the parable of story you're like, oh, I, I don't know, Jesus, I guess Jesus wants to talk about farming today. And they go on their way. But the disciples are like, Jesus, what are you talking about? What did you mean? And they do that a few times. He says, all right, you want to know? Here's the reason for the parables, and now let me tell you the meaning. And in it, we have the seed, the soil, the sower, the hard soil, the soil with rocks, uh, the soil with thorns, and the good soil. So here in verse 11, Jesus says, you know, the parable is this. The seed is what? What is it? the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the seed is the gospel, and the seed is good. The seed is perfect. The seed does not need to be changed. There are too many Christians, there's too many so-called pastors and so-called churches that try to change the seed. If I ever try to change the seed of the gospel, please kick me out of here because we don't change the gospel too many churches change the gospel because they just want to love everyone. Yes, we're commanded to love God and love other people, but we do not dare change the Word of God. And so what happens is the way they change it is like, oh, you want to love those people, so don't tell them about hell. Don't tell them about that. Don't tell them about sin. Only just talk about Jesus at the cross that He loves them greatly. And those who are blinded, they're like, Okay, some guy died on a cross. Why should I follow him? They ask that because you didn't tell them that they're sinners. You didn't tell them why he died on the cross in their place for their sins to bear the wrath of God so that through faith that they believe in him and we be saved. Do you see that? A lot of people are like, oh, a loving God would never send people to hell. A loving God would never tell people. So, oh, just love and peace, right? Love and peace. And all that is is a gathering of people Messing around with the Bible. Don't change the seed. Don't fall to Satan's trap who wants Christians to change the seed to try to get people. Hey, pay attention to Jesus because he loves you. Tell them the truth. Do not be a liar. Do not deceive other people as Satan do and hide the seed or change the seed from them. I know sometimes I get fired up about that. So the gospel is this. We're sinners. We are deserving of hell. We will go to hell if we reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But God in his plan before all of time knew that there would be sin, sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross. Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul writes in Corinthians, it says that he became sin. And God the Father saw His Son and poured out His wrath and punishment on the Son that was meant for you and I. He shed His blood to remove the sin, to purchase us for His own. He died on the cross, was placed in a tomb. Three days later, comes, is raised from death to life. He's ascended to heaven. He's returning. And there is a judgment day. And for all who are in the kingdom of God, eternity with Christ forever. Set free. And for all who are outside of the kingdom of God, hell. And again, some people say, that's not loving. It's the word of God. I don't try to just add something in there. Don't change the seed. If someone does not receive the seed, it's the soil of their heart. It's the soil of their heart. So let's look at this. The soil... Basically, Jesus says, hey, it's the heart condition. And know this, you and I cannot know anyone's true state of the soil of their heart. Only God does. So we may think, oh, I'm not going to talk to that person. That person's such a wicked sinner. They're never going to turn to the Lord. You don't know that. God knows all things. Therefore, we sow the seed. The sower, who is it? Jesus. Jesus. Matthew chapter 13 tells us the sower is Jesus and it continues at the end of Matthew chapter 28 the commission to all of his followers are we are now sowers of the gospel and therefore wherever we go we cast the seed of the gospel and we let god take care of the growth so we have the seed we have the sower soil we have the sower and Jesus says his purpose was to preach the gospel Luke chapter 4 which we were at a while back verse 43 But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So as the sower sows the the seed, the gospel, we look at these four different soils, the hard soil. You ever walked across one of those paths before in the dirt? It's so hard. I mean, I mean, take a breaker bar and a shovel and everything to just kind of break it up to even be any useful at all or to those trails around the area that maybe you've been on. And it's so hard that even when it rains, it doesn't even get muddy. The water just runs off of it. Well, you have this hard soil, and it's a picture of the hard hearts. Verse 12, look at it with me. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Hard hearts, unresponsive people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They reject The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They reject Jesus Christ. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As you're turning there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, again, this is seed on the hard path, and what happens is there's no growth, there's no root that happens, there's not a fraction of faith for these people. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Who's the God of this world? Satan. So Jesus says, hey, the seed falls on that and Satan takes it away. Here it is. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, the word is cast out there. The gospel is declared and Satan distracts him. Satan takes it away. And these people have a heart that is described like the nation of Israel. When God says, you stiff necked stubborn people, you don't want to follow my laws. You don't want to accept my promises to you. Read Ezekiel chapter 36 this week. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God's promises for his work and what he would do. He says, I'm going to take your heart of stone and remove it and give you a heart of flesh. But God's the one who does that work, not the person. Hard soil, hard hearts. At the same time, Scripture teaches us that the hard heart is responsible for their lack of believing and rejection of Christ. The hard soil. Look at verse 13. The soil with the rocks, or the rocks underneath the the small layer of soil there. These are shallow hearts. It says in verse 13, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. This is the person, maybe you've known people like this. I can think of people when I read this this week going, Hey, they were so excited that Jesus Christ died on a cross to save people. And they're like, man, I want to have a part of that. And there's this emotionalism and maybe they go forward or they raise their hand or whatever it may be. And they're like, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. But then if trouble happens in their life, you never see them again. You talk to them later, they don't want anything to do with God. I was reading some statistics and, and this one group called the Pew Research a Group did a study in 2000, 2000, 2018, 2019. A number of other studies have done this. But approximately 65 percent of American adult Christians say they're Christians. I mean, American adults in this nation say they're Christians. Sixty five percent of our nation are Christians. I don't know. I look at our nation. and I'm going, that's hard for me personally to believe. And what I think it is, is this. There's a lot of people who are adults who claim to be Christians because they grew up in the church or they went to that Christian camp or that Bible school. And at some point, someone, they really loved the children, but they said, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Your mommy and daddy, they believe in Jesus. They're going to go to heaven. Do you want to be separated from them and burn in hell forever? Well, not me. Well, you know what? If you pray this prayer, you'll go to heaven. All right. Jesus, I believe in you. Now, again, God's in control of salvation. We'll see that in a minute. But what I have, I'll say, 22 years ago as a youth pastor, in my first year at a church with a few hundred kids in the room, we do these huge mega events and, have, and fill up a place. The goal was to get any kid to raise their hand, come forward and say, I believe in Jesus. And you know what? The percentage of the number of those kids who are actually following Jesus today as adults are super small. We got them to be excited about the fact that you could be saved from hell. Again, I don't know the hearts. I can't gauge that. Only God does. But when I hear that 65% of America and adults say that they're Christians, I'm going, is that true or not? And I think of these people who live in the rocks. They have faith. Or Actually, they don't have faith. They have belief. They have belief. First John teaches us this, because I, I'll tell you this, I used to believe for many years that a person could lose their salvation. Some of you are like, well, I believe in that. Well, look, look at 1 John chapter 2.19. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are they all are not of us. You see, if you go read that, you'll understand the context of what happened. There were some people that looked like church people. They looked like Christians, but they left. And, and, and John says they weren't of us. They didn't have faith. The troubles of this world, the things there, that was, they're not, uh, they didn't have salvation. Again, you cannot uh, lose something you never had. They never had salvation. If you look back at our text here in verse 13, but these have no root. They believe for a while, In a time of testing, fall away. We know this from the Word of God. Two places, uh, James 1, 2 Corinthians 12, are two places that teach us that when a Christian endures trials, it's for the building of their faith. We have nothing in Scripture that says that trials that come to believers, they just fall away. There's a purpose for temptations, for trials, or not temptations for trials, and these things that God allows or God sends for testing people's faith. Abraham, Moses, go through and read Hebrews chapter eleven. All the people who their faith was tested. James chapter two, teaches this. John chapter fifteen, helps us understand the difference between people that live and have hearts with soil on the rocks. John chapter 15, I'll say it again, you need to read John 15 this week. John chapter 15. In verse six, Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And if you read John chapter 15, you know that if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you produce fruit, you don't fall away, you don't wither. It's clear when Jesus says in John 15, those who don't aren't in him, they're cut away, they're thrown into the fire, that they do not produce any fruit whatsoever. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and John chapter 15, you need to read like every day this week. Those who live in the rocky soil, those who fall away are those who are never saved. They depart from their belief in in the good news, but not faith in Christ. In John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30, we have a wonderful, glorious passage here where Jesus says he's the good shepherd. And here's what he says in verse 27. My sheep, you get that? My sheep. Hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, does it say anyone there? It says no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you believe that God can lose his people, then you believe in a small God that fits in a little box in the corner in the back room of your house. God is sovereign. It's clear when the Apostle Paul writes in a number of letters that Jesus Christ is the only way a person can be saved, and that's faith in the work that he's done, a finished work. Those growing up in the soil... Don't have true faith and fall away. Look at verse 14. Those with the soil in the thorns, this seed is, is, is sown in the preoccupied hearts. In verse 14, it says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked. They are strangled out by the cares and riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Again, you have this surface level commitment. I can think of people over the years that have said, hey, I, I want to follow Jesus or I believe in Jesus. And then they fall away. They're nowhere to be found years later. And what they're doing when you talk to them, they're building their own kingdom. They're doing whatever they can to build up their finances, to have their toys and all these things that they can never take with them when they die. And they're people who are not following Christ. Here the word cares, it says, it means to be drawn in different directions or to be distracted, or it's closely related to anxiety and worry. You ever had one of those days you're trying to focus on something, you just get so distracted? I mean, like, even the bird chirping outside, you're like, shut up. It's like everything's distracting you, you know? It's like this is a picture of the cares of the world, the riches, all the things we see uh, uh, on TV and what we want to buy and all the things that people are desiring to build their own kingdom and not God's kingdom and so when they read the word of God that they were excited about one point and he's like hey give up everything and follow me like oh wow i didn't know that was a part of this and so they're choked out 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 the apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs I wonder how many of you are trying to build your own kingdom. Are there, only, are there things that are distracting you from God and His truth? Are there things that take you away from this uh, following after what God has called you to follow Him through the gospel? Well, it says that their fruit does not mature. Matthew and Mark says this person is actually unfruitful. And that's the difference between this last soil that we look at the first three no fruit this last one all kinds of fruit look at verse 15 as for that in the good soil those they are those who hear or the, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience matthew and mark say they bear fruit 30 60 100fold know this this soil compared to the other three There's nothing in the good soil that makes it good. All the soils are hard. It takes the Holy Spirit tilling the soil and making the soil good so that when the seed of the gospel is declared, they go, oh, my Savior, Jesus, I believe in you. It's by the grace of God that any of us have good soil in our hearts the gospel has taken root in and is growing. In Matthew and Mark, when it sells 30, 60, 100 fold, it just helps us understand spiritual maturity levels. I have some that I've talked to in the past and want to say that the other soils are maturity levels of following Christ. No, they're not, because Jesus is clear here in John 15, through other uh, parables and in the gospels, that those who follow him all produce fruit. Even if it's little fruit or great fruit, they all produce fruit by the Holy Spirit. The process of this big word we call sanctification, God growing us spiritually. Those who do not produce fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire. John chapter 15. Those who abide, they hear the gospel, they accept the gospel, and the result is they bear fruit. Turn to one more passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three helps us understand this even more because none of us can cause any of us to come to faith in Christ or to grow. It's all of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in getting the right Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, there was some arguing within the church, says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos, this guy that was teaching there, what then is Paul, the apostle Paul who was teaching, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God. God gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And you know what, God taught this and worked in my heart because for years, especially when I was doing youth ministry and kids raising their hand, I used to be like, oh, I saved that many kids this year. I didn't save one person. I was giving myself glory that was to God. God does the saving. I sow the seed. You sow the seed. God does the growth. He works on the soil of the hearts by the Holy Spirit. Yes, does He use us as believers to do His work? Yes, the primary one is sowing the good seed, the perfect seed of the gospel. So here we go back to where we were at the beginning. The big idea is this. The condition of the heart determines the reception of the gospel and fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. You and I have to ask this question today. How do I apply this passage? I already know this passage, Pastor. I could get a, a better sermon than you on this one. I know this well. Okay, how do you apply it? Having the knowledge is one thing. How do you apply it? Do you need to be like the sower and you're not sowing seed and you need to go share the gospel with other people? Do you need to produce fruit 30, 60, 100 fold and know that God does that, but he's calling you to work with him in this process of sanctification and your prayer today is like, Holy Spirit, would you produce fruit in me? I've been kind of rebellious in this area. I'm not repenting in this area here. Would you do a work in me? Some of you, again, all of us, read John chapter 15. And our prayer, let it be, God, make me a fruitful follower of Jesus Christ. As the worship team comes forward, maybe there's someone who needs to have the soil of their heart tilled and stirred up and, and this morning by the Holy Spirit. And you have rejected Christ uh, uh, up to this day. And today you've heard the gospel. You have a responsibility now. My responsibility is to preach it. Your responsibility is to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. And maybe some of you today need to call on the Lord and say, Jesus, I see the light. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. I believe in you. Save me. Come in my heart. Whatever the prayer that the Lord leads you on. And he's the one who does the work. My prayer has been this week for you, if you're a follower of Christ, and it's a prayer for me, that we would be people who love Jesus and produce fruit, and in, in a spiritual kind of sense, is like those humongous oak trees in California that I have memories of. These trees that are so massive and the roots go so deep. And, and it's like, Father, would you let our roots go deep into your word? Would you cause so much fruit that we would do it all for your glory and none for us? That, you know, one of the things that you can pray for all the uh, the elders and, and Pastor Sean and I as we meet this next week, we're praying, going, Oh, Lord, um, We need to, as a church, grow in corporate prayer. We have people who pray, but we're not doing a good job as a church at corporate prayer. We don't know what that looks like, but would you pray with me about that, that we as a church would be people that would be on our knees asking God to do a work in this city, in this world? I mean, have you seen the news this week? Is there trouble in this world? Is there trouble in our nation? Is there trouble in your life? Is there trouble in your neighbors? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. So would you pray? Pray for me. I pray for you, that we would be people of God with great faith. Father, I pray and ask that you would answer that prayer. I ask for every believer in this room that we would be humongous, spiritual oak trees producing fruit. Lord, that all of that would go as glory to you. And so we pray you'd help us to be faithful, to sow the seed of the good seed, the perfect seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, as we go out and do that this week, we pray that uh, you would prepare the hearts of the people, that you would work on the hard and, and till the soil, that you would work on those in the rocks and the thorns, Lord, that you would bring them to a point of revealing that great truth to them and that they would come to faith. Would you do that? Father, we praise your name. Receive the praise from our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.